Welcome to Breaking Form, a podcast of poetry and culture. I'm Aaron Smith. And I am James Allen Hall. For those uh, listening for the first time, uh, we do this show in segments. We do literary games. We revisit books that we love. We gossip. We do. We interview. We shade. We laugh. And we are not for everyone. Oh my God, you guys are in for such a treat. Wasn't this like so much fun? Our first breaking form interview. I felt like I was not worthy of this deliciousness. He's so smart. Miguel Murphy is so smart. Yeah. So we interviewed Miguel Murphy and in this first episode, you'll get to hear part one today. He really engages his own work and he has a really great insights on the notion of a poetry reader and the privacy of reading and writing and sort of the tendency toward the public persona in today's poetry, which he talks about. And if you all could have seen James's face, he was so happy. Yeah, I made him read a poem I love from his first book, which is uh, called A Book Called Rats. Um, And the poem is, I believe it's called A Love Like Autosodomy. I just love such a good poem. And then he talks about Greg Luganus, the Greg Luganus poem. And also we get into sort of the cultural significance of Greg Luganus and HIV um, in public, I guess would be the way to say it. So I want to tell you uh, Miguel's bio before we hop in. Um, Miguel Murphy is the author of Shoreditch, um, Barrow Street Press 2021, Detainee Barrow Street 2016, and a book called Rats, winner of the Blue Lynx Prize for Poetry. He lives in Southern California, where he teaches at Santa Monica College, and we hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Love Like Autosodomy, and it starts with an epigraph from St. Augustine. I was not in love, and I love to be in love. I sought what I might love, in love with loving. I'm through with the smoke and the fire, through with the intestine of a beautiful city. A man who is lonely may travel only so far along its street at night until nearness is the hand opening so wide there is nothing it can hold. I love that poem so much. And when I, when I was when I was writing my first book, that poem was really instructive to me about form and the sort of slipperiness of confession, um, how you could sort of like it was very post-confessional to me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it just was really helpful for me as a writer, that poem. I just want to let you know that I worship at that altar of that poem a lot. I want to get away from that poem as much as Why? I can. Why is that? I want to ask, because this I think this goes into that. Do you think your work for you has become more private where maybe earlier you were aware that you were talking or speaking to someone and now it feels like you're working something out more private on the page because i feel like i do feel a difference between shoreditch 
And, you know, hearing this poem that I haven't read in years, there's something that even feels formally in certain ways that you've, you've become a little bit more insular and like hearing that one versus this, do you think, do you think your reason for doing it has become more private or I don't know if private's the right word, but I don't know if you can get what I I'm think saying. when I was writing this first book, I didn't realize that other people would read things. So like I read this now and it makes me really uncomfortable. Like it's unbearable, really. Like I, yeah, I could just cry over it. Um, and now I have this awareness. Like I, I mean, I still work alone in the same way, but I definitely have this awareness that that uh, that's <laughs> that I want them to be published. And when it's published, people read them, and people that you know will try to read them. And and that just is so. I don't like that at all. I mean, I prefer it to be anonymous or to go, I mean, it just feels very incestuous to have people I read, read them or, you know, like, I don't, I don't care for that. I, I like the, I like the idea of it being in a library or somewhere lost, you know, I like that. I, I mean, I want to, I mean, I don't know I mean, why, why do we do it? I mean, you, you, you're making something out of life, but it's also, yeah, it's very private. I mean, it's very, it's, that's the, I mean, that's the thing I can never figure out is why I'm still, and it's a performance as well. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, it took a lot of work. I, mean, I remember writing this poem and it was like, you know, four times as long and there's all that you take out and you, you know, you were arranging and thinking about lines and jamming and all that. And so there, part of that is just the, the, the task of making something, but then in the end it stands for something and, and it's the standing for something that I can never uh, resolve within myself. <laughs> I don't, I don't like that people, I don't like that people have access to those to the part of me that that feels like I need to write something. We started writing like we're all in our 40s now. And I feel like I remember the very transition from it being the small thing where people were handing books around to each other and you never had to get their feedback. Like maybe you'd see them at a conference, but you never really had to grapple with the fact that people are responding. And then the internet hit and now it's like immediate feedback. People are reading it. And I think did you feel a shift from that too? Like where it was like, okay, it used to be this private, like almost like these little things we would pass around to each other behind, you know, like here, read this. I just, I mean, I just think that my, my reading life is so private and that I find so much of what I need in life in books. And, and maybe I always have even as a kid, when I wasn't reading poetry, you know, even when you're just like reading the Bible, you know, like those stories always felt like something that you lived with in private. So I have a kind of weird, and, and yeah, when I, when I did end up going to grad school, you know, the idea of writing was that you worked on it alone and then maybe you shared it in class and then maybe people didn't get it and that was fine. Or they were all had like their two cents or something, but, um, but even that felt very insular, you know, like the university was a place to like practice things or just to kind of try things out and you didn't really have the, you didn't really have, I mean, there was no oversight. There was no performance of it. And now the performance is so much a part of it. I mean, yeah. And ever since and MySpace didn't really, there wasn't a big performance of it on MySpace, but Facebook definitely, you know, Facebook is like, Oh, I finished a draft this weekend. You know, like anybody gives a shit <laughs> you know? or, Oh, I was the finalist somewhere. Like nobody gives a fuck, man. Everybody has a fucking book. Everybody has a poem. Everybody's. And I, I think that we're there is all award-winning poets now. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I don't, begr- I mean, I guess yeah. part of me doesn't begrudge it because I think that the people who are younger, it's just their, it's just their way of expressing what they're interested in. Agreed. And for me, and for me, I don't know. I mean, I guess for me, it was always, there was always something kind of secretive about it anyway. Like even when I was in school for it, uh, and even when I first like had teachers who were poets, I didn't understand. I mean, that was such a revelation that, oh, you could, you could be a writer and and be in school. Like, I didn't really understand. I didn't really understand that. So I think now people have just a kind of broader awareness. Like now there's like a, a quote unquote career path. And I, part of me feels like, um, you know, like that, that might be a good recipe for like uh, boring poems. And I don't know that I, I think that when I was writing, I was trying to get in touch with something that could be in touch with other poems um, from people that I loved reading, you know, like Lorca or, or Shakespeare, I hate to say it, but um, you know, like, like there were dead people, like Poe, you know, like dead people whose poems I really loved. And, and I wanted somehow to write a poem to those. I mean, the poems were like love letters to these poems and poets who I knew and admired. And I wanted to make something of it or try it. I don't know. And if you think your lovers in this city will love you without touching the holy cross's wound over the length of your body, then fuck the little boy crying, because pelvically is the only way I know to heal. You have to hate until you hurt no more. You have to be somewhere else. You have to close your eyes to even bear me at all. I, so I so I guess I feel a little bit like, I, I definitely don't feel uh, any kind of need at all to be on Facebook about, I mean, I, I feel the obligation of it as someone who has books out, you know, the book comes out and the press wants you to, or every time you do reading, they want you to like, you know, can you please advertise it? And right. I struggle with that because I feel like as a commodity that doesn't do anything for me. And that that's maybe this kind of difficult irony is that well, in some ways it does, because if you play the game right and you put yourself out there and you and you run your Twitter, Twitter feed right and your Insta and your Facebook, then you 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 become available and you become a kind of brand or a kind of product that you're always pushing. Um, but for me, that's sort of at odds with with the kind of work that, that I that you have to do to get to a place that feels like a real poem so i don't know i struggle with it i'm not very good at it and part of the reason i'm not good at it is because i eschew it <laughs> you know? like I, I um and i think and that's something that i have to work at because i'm not very i don't care on the one hand like i it's fine that people want to be famous poets i don't know that that's something that i that i want which is a weird thing to say I have a life. I have a life and I have books and I'm I'm just trying to write the next poem and that's hard enough. And I, I feel like that should be enough. And I don't know. When I was a kid, I I mean I, I feel like I was artistic as a kid, but I didn't have any concept that it was something that you went on to do. Like it was just something that we did at home. Um, and I don't even really know why. Like, you know, like someone trying to play the piano at home when they're a kid or writing a poem or painting a picture or something. Like there, it was a different kind of practice or fun or discipline. And, and it wasn't until I was, you know, late in college that I realized that people were in school to do those kinds of things. Um, 
so I don't know, something about that follows me around. Like, I feel like I'm just trying to like live my life. Kent, speaking of uh, when you were a kid, I think in the Greg Luganis poem in, uh, in Shoreditch, I think you're nine years old. I think you reveal that the speaker is nine years old in that poem. I think I was 10. I was around 10. Like just, uh, I think the poem says nine girl. <laughs> you got a close reader here. That blue pool. Soul 88. At the prelims, the terror of yours in the water. Infection, the AZT. Oh, he was huge to me when I was, and it was before I, you know, before I knew I realized I was gay and before Mm -hmm. I had any idea of what that might mean or even the knew that he was. I mean, I didn't know mm-hmm. any of those things about him when I was nine, mm-hmm. going on 10. And, um, <laughs> and, um, Sorry, I'm a bitch. No, it's okay. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My- I, you know, I just, he was, a, he was a, a, like a huge role model for me. And my, my dad was in the military and we moved like every six months to two years and, and we were always had to, play a sport. And so we did things that were like year round. So where, whenever in the year we moved, we could just kind of hop in. And so my, you know, so it was like soccer and swimming and diving. And so I was big in swimming and diving. And, um, he just was like this icon to me. Like I liked that he looked like me. I liked that he was so great. And, um, I just gravitated toward him. And like, I hit my head once on a, on a platform. And so that was like the whole thing. And, (laughs) um, and then, so when I finally did, um, you know, when I finally came into an awareness of my own sexuality, then there was this other connection I had to him, which I was really glad for. And it was important to me um, before I knew all the reasons why. I think for gay men of a certain age, my, by the way, my younger brother had, I mean, my younger brother who's gay, um, had posters of Greg Luganis. Like it was, he was very, inspiring to my brother Dustin we went to like a bookstore when Greg Luganis showed up for a signing we stood in line for an hour Greg Luganis was so sweet I think Dustin still has that signed copy of his memoir yeah see I don't have any of that I just remember like you know he was like one of these people that you'd always taught like Mark Spitz and you know there was like a yeah. handful of names back then and you'd be on these teams and they were like the they were like the icons right and yeah um, and, and so he was one of those people that we were always talking about on the teams and, and wanting to be like, and I mean, for a long time, like that, that phrase, no pain, no Spain, that was the motto to get to the Spanish Spain Olympics. And so I, and I swam with people who were like, that was the trajectory, you know, like you wanted to get to the next Olympics, which was still like, you know, four, eight years away, I think at that point or something. I mean, so it was like, people were training and they were getting ready and, yeah. And so that was like the ambition, you know, that were, there was something about that that was so huge. And then, you know, and then later to realize that he has, that he had HIV and that that was the whole thing that, that was uh, an issue for him, uh, you know, for me felt very important. I mean, I mean, it's another layer of feeling close to him. And I think for me, when that happened and, and hit his head and there was blood in the water and people were like, oh no, right. Uh, that whole, like. AIDS fear, HIV fear. Um, and it just was, it's weird metaphor. And I think your poem sort of nails it like the cracking open of Greg Luganis's flesh, right? His head when he hit the headboard, like allowed HIV 
and how we knew it to crack open into other discourses, right? I mean, it just, it, it's, it started allowing people to really think about like, oh, wow, our heroes, people that we look up to, people who are fucking incredible at what they do. I think Magic Johnson was the one where people were like, oh, straight people can get it too. And then that, sure. I think yeah. from Greg Luganis, it's only in retrospect that that, I mean, I don't know about the larger discourse, but for me, it was a, it was the private discourse, you know, like, yeah, there's this guy and not only is he gay, but then there's, he's got this thing too. And so then later when I found out my status, it was, it was that much more palpable to me um, in terms of thinking about it. I mean, you know, we're, we are of a kind of interesting age and in that we straddle uh, these two ways of being gay. And like, for me, I feel like I'm, I'm old enough to remember the terror of AIDS, like that utter yeah. fear and the utter, like um, that great taboo of just being who you are. And then that coupled with the sort of like, Oh, you know, you're walking around with like death and, and, and just how horrific that was, you know, to die of something that didn't have a name or that, you know, that you, that nobody wanted to talk about that, you know, the Reagans were like, you know, give a shit about us. And, but I'm also young enough not to have to die of it, which mm -hmm. is, which is a strange thing to admit and in a great privilege, but also, um, yeah, it's interesting. I just yeah. think your poem gets these fragments from inside the sort of the subjectivity of a, a, a queer person at that age and also sort of a queer person now, like looking back at that age, yeah. I just think the poem nails it. And that was one thing that, you know, my students didn't have available to them, right. Um, that I could explain to them like, Oh no, this, this poem, like if you, if you're inside the baseball team, right. Like you get it. Right. Just like, you know, we were talking about Adrian Rich's um, diving into the wreck when she says there's a ladder, the ladder's always been there. We who use it know what it's for, right? For me, that that's exactly when I read that Greg Luganus poem, it just what, brought how me back. I am, you are, we are by cowardice or courage. I mean, that's such a great, those mm -hmm. are great lines by her. Yeah. And I just want the record to show that that Miguel did not turn to his bookshelf to quote Adrian. <laughs> no, Rich, no he did rack. not. But that's what I mean. Like the <laughs> queer subjectivity that that poem nails and that Shoreditch really is about is, I mean, in the erasure of the records of the 1980s and 90s, especially around HIV and, um, and queerness, like it's, I think it's an important book to have um, that we can look at and see how, I mean, it's an archive of human feeling and thought, especially for queer people. I mean, I guess I, that's not really for me to say. I don't no, know no, 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 no. I'm offering yeah. it to you. And oh. I know that you will run away, <laughs> but you're here now on Zoom and we got you. No, um, no I, I, I understand it's, it. That is from a reader's perspective. I will say like my students were like, we, we had to look a lot of stuff up. I'm like, I told you. I told you you were going to have to look some stuff up. And, you know, that's sort of like how queer I feel folks... like that's my experience of reading. And so I, yeah. I don't really right. care much about this whole, like... I have to look stuff up. I'm like, well, if only you had a computer at your very hand. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I just feel like there's, like, uh, this idea that I have to worry about the reader irritates me. Because I don't, mm. I mean, I just feel like I... 
even as a kid, as a reader, that was the great joy of being a reader was that it had nothing to do with you. Yeah. No. And if you did the work, and if you did the work for it, then you realized it had everything to do with you. And isn't that what, isn't that what art is, you know, but you got to do some work for it. I don't, I don't have any problem with that. And I yeah. think that's what I meant about your work becoming more private. That I think that's what I was getting at a little bit was like, you just really decided like, I'm going to, I'm going to write what I love, how I love it. And then like, there's enough there if people want to go, you know, look it up and find it. But you just seemed like a little less concerned because didn't you tell me when you were trying to place poems <laughs> that you got, well, you, I mean, you play. I oh, well. I mean, I always read this poem because nobody would publish it. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, no, like, yeah. And you said James is like, "Fuck, I'm a cherry tree." You could have sent it to me. Well, we but, and cherry tree did publish a I will a, a fabulous poem in the book. I mean, to be fair, it did get published with Ron Slate, but it was like it went through. I mean, I just. Sent but it wasn't there discussion? I mean, I'm just curious if you're yeah. we if you're not comfortable talking about it. But no, I don't mind. Talking. I'm curious about the end because you said there was wasn't there something that Ron was picking up at the ending of the poem? Well, he worried that, that it was obscure. You know, he worried that it was a it was an obscure ending just for obscurity's sake. Mm. And I, you know, that the line about the white speedo and then the word these. Mm -hmm. And I just and I I think in my email back to him, I said, listen, the the that's that's the part I'm trying to save. You know, it's not meant to be obscure. It's fucking Greg Luganis. Go, no, anybody could go Google it and watch him fall and hit his head and get back on and hear all the, you know, I mean, the videos are out there for you to go watch if you want it. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure he remembered that event, but I, I think that there's a drive in poetry to make sense of what you're telling the quote unquote reader. And my issue with that is that I don't believe in a reader, you know, to, I don't think that, I don't think that the writer has to think I, I don't think the reader exists for the writer. I think that's a bunch think, of shit. Do you think the these at the end then is more for you or the reader? Like I'm, you know, because that that I don't, who, I don't know who is this fucking mythical reader. There's no yeah. fucking thing. The reader doesn't exist. I don't think the reader. I mean, I get it. I am a reader, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I I love books. I love poetry. I understand what it means. But I'm saying, as the writer, the reader doesn't fucking exist. Like mm -hmm. you're you're. Like Frank Bedard is not thinking, oh, Miguel Murphy is going to hold this book. Yeah, I can't wait to explain mm -hmm. it to him. Like, what the fuck is that? No, he's wrestling. He's wrestling his own life. And I don't think that has anything to do with anybody else. Um, I think that I think that the 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 discipline and the task of writing a poem and making art is that you have to uh, that you're trying to. You're wrestling with the medium as much as anything else. I think I want my poem to be a love letter to another poem. Okay. Um, so, oh. if, like my my dream of 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 whatever thing I write is that it will be in a library law somewhere. You know? Rewind. A man's embrace. A four-hour interval of pills. Pause. A white speedo. A silent climb. These. Hey, Aaron. Wasn't that fun listening to Miguel talk about his work? That was great. I really do enjoy speaking with him. I do, that too. Sound, that sounded so phony when I just said that. That was great. I really do. I don't know why I said no. it like that. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I really did enjoy that episode. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and, you know, looking, listening for like the fact checks, I didn't really find anything. 
At first, I thought that I didn't, and then I did find one detail, and you're gonna, oh. you're, yeah, you're gonna gay gasp. You said all of us are are there. Nobody catches it. You say when Greg Laganus hit the headboard. <laughs> You don't say diving board yeah. or platform. It was like, and all of us fags are like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that is the one correction. He may have hit a headboard, but that wasn't out by the pool. So he, he... hit his head on the diving board. Yeah. I just put that all together. <laughs> so that is our fact check. Oh, I'm, I'm blushing. <laughs> That's funny. All right. Bye. Bye. And don't forget, everybody, part two of the Miguel Murphy interview will be this Thursday. Hey, everyone, if you like today's breaking form, please go to the Apple Store and review us with five stars. Uh, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Breaking Form Pod. And be sure to check the show notes for references. And remember, we're not for everyone. Peter doesn't fucking exist. <laughs>